0: Iran has blatantly disregarded U.N. Security Council resolutions, lied to the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors about its nuclear program, and evaded U.N. sanctions. That was U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo berating Iran last year in the wake of America's pullout from the complicated nuclear deal it negotiated with Iran and then withdrew from. You're listening to the TCF World Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, your host. Today, I'm joined by Iran expert Dina Esfandiari, who has closely followed the twists and turns of the deal and its aftermath and Iran's efforts to build a new order for itself in the wake of America's pullout. Welcome, Dina.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Dina, how is the international system adapting to the aftermath of the collapse of the JCPOA?
1: Well, it's been really interesting to watch the way uh, all the negotiators have interacted, both with Iran but also amongst themselves. As a result of the U.S. pulling out of the deal, um, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, was uh, actually a symbol of successful multilateralism. Um, a number of countries came together and negotiated a deal with Iran to restrict uh, something that they wanted. They have been wanting to restrict for a while. Um, after that, Iran implemented the agreement. And the idea was that the other side was supposed to also implement its end of the bargain, which was to basically reduce um, or completely uh, stop sanctions on Iran. Uh, we,
0: and we were supposed to understand this as a real victory for multilateral partnerships between the P5 plus one, right, for a fractious group that included Russia, not always capable of acting in harmony. And it was also supposed to show showcase the International Atomic Energy Association and even the UN's capability of actually solving intractable conflicts.
1: Absolutely, and it did exactly that. I mean, I think it was pretty remarkable that the P5 plus 1 countries were able to work together at a time where there was issues going on in Crimea Crimea with Russia, uh, at a time where tensions were relatively high with China, and yet everybody came together and negotiated this deal, uh, and apparently the dynamics within the P5 plus 1 were also pretty good. I mean, everybody agreed um, that the ultimate outcome that they wanted was a nuclear deal with Iran that would curb Iran's nuclear program, which is exactly what we got, and once the deal happened, the IAEA, the organization in charge of um, monitoring the implementation of the deal, came out a number of times and did exactly that. It monitored Iran's implementation of the deal and then proceeded to confirm it, I think, to date, about 13 times. Um, So it's definitely a victory for multilateralism. The problem was that, as you mentioned last year, the U.S. pulled out of the deal. And when they did that, they were the ones who stabbed multilateralism, uh, I was going to say in the back, but actually pretty, uh, pretty much in the face, yeah, it. actually. <laughs> um, and so, so this made things really difficult because the JCPOA was actually a symbol of the victory of multilateralism.
0: Well, so are we seeing the United States opportunistically attacking international institutions that it wanted to attack anyway and using the Iran deal as an excuse, uh, or, or in a way, uh, are we, are we seeing the limits of international accord because these kinds of institutions only function well when people are on the same page and not, uh, when there's a great power dispute.
1: Well, no, because again, the JCPOA was proof that actually even when there was great power dispute, they were able to come together and work together in order to get the agreement um, at the end. So um, I do think that this is actually more a case of the U.S taking a shot at multilateralism just because the current administration doesn't really believe in it uh, and doesn't believe in the costs that multilateralism might incur for the greater good. It's undeniable that working through institutions such as the UN uh, only works when states um, uphold the agreements that they sign. There is no greater policeman to police what states sign on to. But so far, um, this system has been relatively effective. Let's
0: fact check that assertion that we heard at the beginning of the podcast when Mike Pompeo was uh, blaming Iran for renegade behavior that he alleged uh, Iran was engaging in even after the deal uh, was, was, was signed. How bad of an actor is Iran being in geopolitical terms, and how has its behavior changed uh, for better or for worse since the deal was reached, implemented, and uh, broken?
1: It's undeniable that Iran is a problematic actor in the Middle East. Nobody is trying to say that it's actually changed or that it's perfect today and that it works with everyone. No. But, uh, but I do believe that Iran has shown actually a great deal of restraint given um, the context within which it's operating in. Uh, Secretary Pompeo has now said a number of times that Iran has carried out missile tests that are problematic. Absolutely, these tests are problematic. There haven't been as many as one would have assumed there would have been uh, from a country like Iran uh, acting up against the US pulling out of the deal. Um, and uh, and actually, the JCPOA and UN Security Council 2231 that came into uh, that came into being after the JCPOA um, never actually forbade any Iranian missile activity. That was the whole point of the Iran nuclear deal: that it would target only Iran's nuclear program. So the tests are contrary to the spirit of the deal and to the spirit of the UN Security Council resolutions, but actually they don't go against them.
0: I think it's important to get a sense of what the trajectory is though, because the the implication of Pompeo's statement is that Iran started acting worse after the deal was implemented and specifically that it took money that it made as a result of this deal and then used it uh, for nefarious purposes. And I mean, is that true, or has its behavior been, and to the extent that it's been problematic for the West, has it been consistent uh, for for the, that whole period of, of of the deal being made and afterwards?
1: This assertion that Iran firstly made money off the deal and that it was you know the Americans that gave Iran money as a result of the deal is something that's been repeated over and over and again, and it's actually outright wrong. Um, the, what the U.S. did was as a result of the nuclear agreement, it released. Iranian funds that were frozen abroad. So that's the first thing that has to be clarified. Secondly, actually Iran has been remarkably consistent before these funds were unfrozen and after these funds were unfrozen. There is absolutely zero proof that Iran took these funds and then immediately funneled them into its regional activities because Iran was doing that before when it didn't have access to its own money and it was under severe sanctions. So actually that hasn't had that much of an impact on Iranian activity in the region
0: and And it seems like iran's uh, Iran's position is to try and and present itself as uh, being a consistent actor. You know, like them or not that that what they're doing is the same before and after the deal, and they're using that as a selling point uh, with the europeans and and with other powers. I, I want to turn to the the p five plus one, the group of countries that that negotiated the deal, uh, the original deal with with Iran. Uh, Let's listen for a minute to Federica Mogherini, who's the the top foreign affairs official for the European Union. Uh, Here she's speaking about the JCPOA deal.
2: Uh, The basis, uh, the full implementation of the GCPOA is also the basis for our regional dialogue with Iran. We have a high level political dialogue as we speak. I don't know if this is known, but as we speak, we are holding uh, another round of European Union dialogue with Iran and with uh, uh, the E4, uh, Italy, France, Germany and the UK. On regional issues, uh, starting uh, from Yemen, uh, on which we've seen some recent positive developments that have been endorsed by the Iranian uh, foreign ministry, for the first time ever, expressing support in this direct manner to the work of the United Nations uh, special envoy.
0: This quote came in December, uh, during a time when when there were uh, intense negotiations going on around uh, the Yemen conflict uh, in, in Sweden. Uh, Dina, what is actually on the table when the EU talks to Iran these days? Is it just business or do they talk about political issues like Iran's support for the Houthis in Yemen or Iran's pivotal role in upholding the regime in Syria?
1: Uh, it's a wide ranging dialogue that covers a range of issues. so the idea behind this was that they would reach the nuclear deal first and that would remove a barrier to dialogue with Iran that had been created over the course of you know a decade or so just because the nuclear issue had taken on such importance. Once that was dealt with, the Europeans decided to build on that to have this high level political dialogue, which is the name g- they've given to to um, to the dialogue with Iran. Um, to discuss a range of issues. So as you mentioned, the Iran's uh, regional role activities in Syria and uh, Yemen are uh, discussed regularly, but also actually um, the the state of human rights in Iran. Uh, and of course, the implementation of the nuclear deal, but also economic issues such as the sanctions relief that Iran has been struggling to to really, Get the benefits of. So actually, it's just it's it's a dialogue on a range of issues, and it is the model that I believe should have been implemented with the with the U.S. For example,
0: this is a longstanding criticism of the Iran deal. It's not Trump's criticism, but it's a criticism that, that people, including myself, made, which is uh, that the dialogue was almost what uh, was was hermetically and artificially limited to just one set of issues around uh, uh, nuclear. Uh, nuclear material uh, and excluded everything from missiles and rockets to Syria, Iraq, Yemen, uh, and 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 other uh, critical critical issues. Uh, what what do we learn from the way? Uh, because the the argument was made at the time uh, by Americans that if all those things were put on the table, it would be impossible to get Iran to to make movement on its nuclear program. Uh, so are we are we finding out? are we getting evidence now that it turns out that's not true and that if you ask Iranians to talk about this whole array of issues, they will?
1: Interestingly, it actually would have been in Iran's interest if it had agreed to having this grand bargain discussion that people were talking about and, and, and particularly uh, of some of the Gulf Arabs were calling for uh, at the time of the negotiations because Iran could have uh, I mean, you have to remember Iranian negotiations are pretty deaf negotiations. So what they negotiators. So what they could have done was to um, use uh, gains in one area to offset some of the um, some of the things it would have had to give in on. Uh, for example, in in Syria. So actually, this it was in Iran's interest to make this a grand bargain, but ac- but Iran agreed to limit it to just the nuclear issue because I think this was the first instance of really engaging Iran uh, and having you know the P five plus one really talk to Iran about an issue that was uh, problematic to them, and it would have been. I agree with with uh, some of the some of the statements that came out of the U.S. at the time and the U.S. negotiators that it would have been impossible to tackle absolutely everything in the run-up to the to the nuclear deal. It, it had to tackle just one issue, and at the time, this was the issue that was the greatest concern to the P5 plus one, perhaps not to Iran's Gulf Arab neighbors, but definitely to the P5 plus one. Once that was dealt with, it then became possible to engage Iran on a range of other issues, which is exactly what the Europeans are doing.
0: Researchers at the Century Foundation have been exploring ways to resolve the conflict in Yemen. For reports on the possible diplomatic solutions to the conflict and America's complicity there, please go to the Sentry Foundation's website, tcf.org, and search for Yemen, or click on the world section. Hello, this is the Nasi Kambanis. I'm back uh, here with Dina Esfandiari. Dina We were talking about uh, Europe and their ongoing uh, negotiations with Iran. I want to play another clip from Federica Mogherini, and and, uh, uh, that's the foreign affairs chief of the European Union.
2: The e- E3 ministers uh, uh, debriefed uh, uh, the others on the state of play of the um, establishment of the special purpose vehicle. Uh, we all supported uh, their work uh, they are doing together with the finance ministers of their countries, and I would expect uh, this uh, instrument to be established in the coming weeks, so before the hand of the year, uh, as uh, a way to protect uh, and to promote legitimate business uh, with Iran.
0: That was Federica Mogherini speaking at the end of last year uh, in December. Dina, explain to us what this special purpose vehicle is and why it's important.
1: So the SPV is basically a way for Iran uh, and the Europeans in particular, but also others, to do legitimate business like Iran was promised um, once it signed on to the nuclear deal. Uh, one of the issues that have been in place is that Iran hasn't really reaped the benefits of the deal like it was promised, uh, because sanctions relief was initially patchy, and then when Trump removed the U.S. from the deal, he imposed additional sanctions on Iran. And so uh, it's been very difficult for Iran to continue... Uh, to conduct business with Europeans.
0: And this is a very specifically a technical problem where there's no way to make payments to Iran. If American sanctions are in place and you can't use the formal banking system, there becomes no way to pay for Iranian gas or to, for Iran to pay for goods and trade.
1: That's absolutely right, yes. It's been really difficult to get payments processed. And so the Europeans came up with this mechanism, the SPV, which is essentially setting up a new financial institution that would be mandated to process payments for Iran.
0: How much has Europe been able to go its separate way from the United States on Iran? How much has it been forced to come to heel?
1: So this has been very interesting to watch, actually. For Europe, uh, this was a real test case of what it was going to be able to do um, to defend itself and its interest in the face of U.S. pressure, Uh, and and efforts to um, force it to draw down its involvement um, with Iran. And so far, actually, the Europeans have not been able to do that much to protect their interests, particularly their economic interests. They've been very good on a political level. They've made numerous political statements about supporting the implementation of the deal. Um, But economically, it's been really difficult for them to continue to give Iran the benefits of the deal and for them to really um, force their businesses, which of course they can't really do because that's the private sector, but force their businesses to do to do business with Iran, which is what was promised during the deal.
0: Has the Iran rift created other rifts in the relation between the United States and the European Union?
1: Um, I think that the uh, the Iran rift was really the first instance where the Europeans and the Americans found themselves at odds Uh, Quite violently, actually, because the Europeans have continued to maintain that the implementation of the JCPOA is important. Today, uh, the US has reimposed its sanctions on Iran, and the Europeans are actively looking for ways around those sanctions, actively looking for ways to ignore the new sanctions that have been imposed on Iran, which um, kind of brings in this new era where uh, Europe and America is no longer working together. And in fact, the Europeans are trying to work against what the U.S. is doing. Now, at the moment, they're not being very successful because the U.S. the U.S.'s reach into the uh, economic system in the world is, is just too far. But ultimately, one day, if the Europeans succeed in putting in place a successful SPV, for example, that model could be, um, could be re-established for other countries and other issues.
0: The fundamental disadvantage facing Europe on on an issue like this and really on all foreign policy issues is that there's no unitary decision-making for the continent. So you have all the EU member states with their often competing uh, strategic interests. And so even if you have Mogherini able to take a coherent position on one aspect or another of a negotiation like Iran or on an issue like Syria, ultimately it doesn't have the same muscle as uh, a white house which can speak for uh, in one voice for the executive branch of the whole united states that said this is this is the most interesting test i think we've seen in recent years because there's real political difference at stake there's real major financial interest at stake and this spv i think is one of the most fascinating manifestations of this because it is a it's it it defies the web of financial uh, the, the financial web that was put together essentially to track terror financing after 9/11, and that that tried to make the entire flow of world commerce go through organs that are surveilled and and have some kind of uh, that, that the United States has some kind of leverage over, and to see Europe overtly building an alternative to that system, to me speaks to something much more more significant than just what happens with with Iran and the JCPOA.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And let's remember that Europe isn't the only ac- international actor that's been doing that. Um, as a result of the greater U.S. reach into uh, into the world um, financial markets and the world economy, for example, um, countries like China and Russia have also been building alternative systems and alternative ways of either processing payments or messaging systems between banks, for example, um, or using alternative currencies to pay for um, for goods and oil in particular in order to find ways to evade U.S. sanctions. So again, this is kind of the beginning of the end of uh, American reach into uh, into the international world economy.
0: Or American hegemony over the, the, me- the mechanics of the global economy.
1: Though it's something that's going to take a long, long time. I mean, I think that the U.S.'s position is pretty firm for now.
0: And it's possible that this is, in a way, a negotiating position uh, something that Europe, down the road, maybe after Trump or in in some other chapter, would be willing to trade away in return for some kind of concession from the United States, uh, back back to a harmonious uh, relation.
1: Absolutely, and a lot of that will depend on how successful they are with their SPVs. I mean, at the moment, all eyes really are on this SPV that's being set up for Iran because it's still unclear exactly how it's going to work, which is part of the reason why the Europeans took so long to negotiate and and figure out what they were going to do.
0: For years, we've been used to accusations that Iran is a rogue state coming from Washington. Let's listen to Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Zarif uh, speaking more recently about America as a rogue state,
3: the United States is asking countries to violate international law and is telling countries and companies that if they observe the law they'll be punished. This is probably unprecedented uh, even for a bully uh, in, in in a town to go to the sheriff's office and tell tell them. If you try not to rob people, you're going to be punished. The United States is pushing people to act in a lawless way. Uh, I don't think it's going to be sustainable. Uh, This policy is going to have a backlash. The international community is not going to accept somebody to come and just orders them. Uh, We will continue to work with the Europeans.
0: Notwithstanding the bluster, this statement by Zarif has the benefit of being true. How much prestige and leverage has America lost? And what does Iran gain when America, for a change, is perceived to be the spoiler or the bully in the international system?
1: I would argue that the U.S. has lost quite a bit of prestige as a result of this entire JCPOA fiasco, really. Um, when you look at the what happened in September on the sidelines of the UN Security Council, the UN General Assembly, um, President Trump called a meeting of the UN Security Council in order, in order to call out Iran, um, its uh, nuclear program, and its activities in the region. And at the end of that meeting, um, every single country that was present had uh, basically professed their support Of the JCPOA and of Iran's implementation of it. And all of them called on the U.S. to uh, re enter the agreement and continue or or start implementing the nuclear deal once again. Um, Iran was really the big political victor after that meeting. It looked like a reasonable state that was in favor of multilateralism, in favor of uh, the nuclear deal, and in favor of engaging with, its, uh, with, with other countries in the world, whereas the U.S. looked isolated and looked very much like a bully.
0: Is there a chance that America will get a pass and that the world will see this as a Trump, uh, sort of a Trump departure, and that one day when he's gone, everyone will just be able to pick up where we left off in 2016?
1: Um, I think there's there's definitely a chance that that this will be very much a um, a uh, associated with the Trump administration. Uh, of course, it depends who comes after President Trump. But uh, but what it has done is, I think, it'll leave a little bit of a bad taste in everyone else's mouth. And um, these dynamics of openly looking for ways to go against U.S. policy or openly looking for ways to avoid. Um, American sanctions and and, uh, punitive measures uh, will have already been put in place. There'll be a precedent for it, which means that if it happens again um, and it's not done in conjunction with the U.S.'s allies, then it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to achieve its objectives.
0: Now, there's also the perception that Iran really needs help and that its economy has struggled and these sanctions really do bite and that in the long run, Iran needs uh, it needs a level of normalization that will allow it to, to, to function as a real uh, open economy and, and reap the benefits of its natural resources uh, and its considerable human pa- capital. Uh, and, that it, and it seems like that motive might be behind uh, the kinds of, of tougher rhetoric that we hear, like in, in this cl- clip uh, that we'll play from Ali Akbar Velayati, uh, an advisor to the Supreme Leader of Iran, uh, where he... Uh, talks about Iran's plan to continue dealing with the EU, but at the same at the same time uh, takes exception to moves that it considers threatening, uh, and then ends like this. European countries
3: should compensate what uh, we have lost after the withdrawal f- of the United States illegally from this agreement.
0: Does Iran? expect compensation and if it doesn't and this is just a rhetorical gesture can we read in this evidence of the actual economic pain that iran's isolation has brought
1: It's undeniable that sanctions have had an impact on Iran, particularly the rounds of sanctions that led to the JCPOA. Now, that's not the only reason why the Iranians came to the negotiating table, but it definitely had an impact. Otherwise, you know, the negotiations may not have ended up where they did. And today, Iranian mismanagement of its economy, coupled with new sanctions um, and, and tough sanctions, uh, are having an impact on Iran. I mean inflation is very high, unemployment is very high, all of the indicators that, that indicate that things aren't going well are doing exactly that. So I don't think Iran is expecting compensation per se, but it does have to have something to show uh, to its domestic constituency as a measure of success for signing onto the nuclear deal because of course Iran had to give up quite a lot and it had to do a lot of convincing internally. And so once it came to terms with the idea that it wasn't going to be able to get any meaningful sanctions relief, it did have to get something out of the international community. So one example of that would be that it would be able to continue and perhaps even boost its oil sales.
0: The U.S. put specific pressure on Iranian oil and and gas clients, including Iraq and India, uh, to try and and get them to stop buying Iranian natural gas. That's obviously a long-term uh, endeavor, but how is that going?
1: So, uh, a few months ago, the US had to, when it imposed this blockade on on the purchase of Iranian oil, it had to issue waivers to a number of countries, including um, Iran's biggest client, for example, China, because it became clear that uh, that some countries were just not going to either be able to draw down their uh, imports of Iranian oil, or in fact wanted to draw down their imports of Iranian oil. So, and, and uh, I think that it's likely that even though these waivers are only supposed to last six months, and that's supposed to give these countries six months to then draw it down to zero, I think it's likely that in six months' time, uh, we're going to find ourselves in a situation where the waivers are going to be reissued.
0: Because either... America doesn't issue the waivers and the countries will buy the oil anyway, and therefore America looks weak uh, or it issues the waivers in order to pretend that it somehow affects what everyone does. How much return on its investment has Iran gotten from its long-term strategic investment in the relationships with Russia and China, which it's cultivated as a, as a sort of safety valve and alternative uh, to the Western economy and Western political sphere?
1: So this has been a, a one of the, I would argue, highlights of Iranian foreign policymaking. Um, Iran's investment in the, its relationship with Russia and China has made it so that today it's almost impossible to isolate Iran in the way that the Western world had managed to do in 2010 uh, when everybody signed on to the sanctions and it was the UN Security Council that imposed additional sanctions on Iran, which of course is what made them effective. Um, Today, US sanctions are effective, yes, but as long as other countries are looking for ways around them, then ultimately Iran has um, a way to contravene them. And so uh, Iran has spent the better part of the last few decades building political-economic relations with countries like Russia and China, um, who, by the way, are other two big superpowers, which means it's been really helpful for Iran to have them, for example, in place in the UN Security Council because it gives Iran um, at least a little bit of leeway with regards to their veto power, for example. Um, but also just the support that they've given Iran. They were present in Iran throughout the period, um where sanctions were particularly biting in the lead up to the the nuclear deal, um and they continued to do business with Iran when everybody else stopped, so it kind of gave Iran a little bit of breathing room um, both economically and politically
0: and that's the same kind of long term relationship cultivation that we see Iran engaging with Europe today and with these efforts to build the s p v right that's a yet another alternative uh alternative valve or sphere or a channel to to end uh dina what do you think is the next big inflection point is it the 2020 presidential elections in the united states uh or something else
1: um i think this is where domestic politics in both the u.s and in iran will come into play um i think it will be hugely important for iran to watch who will be elected at the next U.S. presidential elections and whether it's going to be a second round of Trump or if it's going to be someone else, because that will determine just how biting U.S. sanctions are going to continue to be and how far the U.S. is going to go in order to call for the collapse of of, um, the current government in Iran. And on the Iranian side... Um, The next round of parliamentary elections, um, but also the next Iranian presidential elections, will also be important because I think that domestically the moderates um, are losing a little bit of steam uh, and their return on investment with the JCPOA it may have worked out well uh, politically for them internationally because Iran appears as a reasonable state.
0: But they don't run for office with uh, international diplomats as their constituents.
1: That's absolutely right. And so... The hardliners are gaining steam right now in Iran, so I think that that watching um, both uh domestic situations in both the u s and iran will be will be interesting
0: and we can't rule out the possibility of a crisis in Syria or Iraq or Yemen uh, or in a surprise place uh, to be determined that will uh, have us scurrying to figure out what comes next. Dina, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this is the Nasty Kambanis. I've been talking with Dina Sfondiari, a fellow here at the Century Foundation and also at the Belfer Center at Harvard University. Thanks, Dina.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.